Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Gentlemen of the Senate, I transmit to you a document which seems to be intended to be a compliance with a condition mentioned at the conclusion of my message to Congress of the 21st of June last. Always disposed and ready to embrace every plausible appearance of probability of preserving or restoring tranquility, I nominate William Vance Murray, our minister resident at The Hague, to be minister plenipotentiary of the United States to the French Republic. If the Senate shall advise and consent to this appointment, effectual care shall be taken in his instructions that he shall not go to France without direct and unequivocal assurances from the French government, signified by their Minister of Foreign Relations, that he shall be received in character, shall enjoy the privileges attached to his character by the law of nations, and that a minister of equal rank, title, and powers shall be appointed to treat with him to discuss and conclude all controversies between the two republics by a new treaty. With this special message sent to Congress on February 18, 1799, President John Adams threw a grenade into the American political landscape, the effects of which would continue on into the presidential election the following year. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, I'd like to welcome all of you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Noah Tetzner for providing the intro quote for this episode. In addition to hosting the History of Vikings, Noah has recently started a new podcast, Stories of the Second World War. His first few episodes have looked at prominent historical figures such as Winston Churchill and Erwin Rommel, while also exploring the Allied campaign to destroy the infrastructure supporting the Luftwaffe and the Allied military operation against Italian forces in Egypt and Libya. You can check it out by going to Stories of the Second World War, that's all spelled out, no spaces, dot com, or by searching for Stories of the Second World War anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll also have links to it and the History of Vikings on the Source Notes page for this episode. The words from this quote were first read to the Senate on the 18th by Vice President Thomas Jefferson, and given all that we know of Jefferson to date, we can only imagine his surprise at the words that he was reading. He did not comment one way or another when he wrote to Madison the following day to report on Adams' special message, except to say that, quote, This decision had evidently been kept secret from the Federalists of both houses, as appeared by their dismay. The Senate have passed over this day without taking it up. It is said they are graveled and divided. Some are for opposing, others do not know what to do. But in the meantime, they've been permitted to go on with all the measures of war and patronage. And when the close of the session is at hand, it is made known. However, it silences all arguments against the sincerity of France and renders desperate every further measure towards war. This dramatic change in policy was indeed a surprise to Congressional Federalists, as well as Democratic Republicans and the public at large. As noted by Murray biographer Peter P. Hill, quote, Murray's nomination evoked three distinct political responses. Most vociferous was that of the High Federalist, who, disappointed at the peaceable turn of events, lashed out indiscriminately at the president, the decision, 
and the chosen agent. No less important, however, was the reaction of moderate Federalists who, though fearful of party schism, rallied loyally to the chief executive. Republicans, for their part, were smugly pleased, convinced that French overtures had, by their sincerity, forced Adams belatedly to recognize the futility of war. If you'll indulge me, in this episode, I'd like to take a closer look at this decision and the reaction to it, then circle back around to a couple of other matters of foreign affairs tangentially related to the situation with France, before setting us up for exploring in future episodes what's next for the U.S. and the Adams administration following the public announcement of the new peace mission. Sound like a plan? Okay then, let's get to it. As we've seen in recent episodes, there were hints to his cabinet and advisors that such a shift had been on Adams' mind the past few months. After the conference between Secretary of War James McHenry and Generals Washington, Hamilton, and Pinckney in Philadelphia broke up on December 13th, they were convinced that they had sorted out all the major issues of Army organization, and McHenry dutifully reported their results to Adams, with the results then being sent on to Congress in order for them to pass the legislation needed to move things along. However, this legislation would cause problems. Hamilton was given the task of drafting the proposed bills, and he decided to up the size of the new army beyond what had already been provided for to, quote, a force of 53,000 regulars, plus dragoons and a volunteer corps. To put this in perspective, General Anthony Wayne's Legion of the United States was composed of just over 5,000 regular soldiers. Not only did this proposal alarm the Democratic-Republicans— But Adams, too, was wary of such a large force, with Adams focusing in on the issue of officer appointments, which, as noted by historian Karen Robbins, quote, he saw as patronage, a way to build political support whether the army became a reality or not. First, Congress changed up the officer list that McHenry and the generals had sent over. Then Adams interfered by deciding, quote, not to fix the ranks of these lower officers until the entire service was determined. An irritated McHenry could then only send notices, not official commissions, to those who Congress had approved, telling them that their actual rank would be determined later. As can be expected, the men who received these notices were little inclined to accept a pseudo-commission without knowing what exactly it was for which they were signing up. Even Hamilton was starting to suspect that something was amiss, writing to Washington two days before Adams nominated Murray to the diplomatic post in France that, quote, I more and more discover cause to apprehend that obstacles of a very peculiar kind stand in the way of an efficient and successful management of our military concerns. These it would be unsafe at present to explain. As noted last episode, increasingly, the news that Adams was receiving from Murray, his sons John Quincy and Thomas, and from other informants indicated that there was a path to peace but Adams opted to keep this information close to his chest. On the 15th, he received the last piece of the puzzle, which settled the matter in his mind. On that day, he learned that the directory government had repealed some of the more problematic maritime decrees to which the U.S. had been objecting. No time better than the present to go ahead and rip off the bandage, right? One has to wonder, though, if it would have been better received if he had let more people in on the intelligence that he was receiving. Karen Robbins wrote in her interpretation of the nomination that, quote, a better party leader would have consulted with his supporters, building a bulwark from which to fight the inevitable political battle ahead. A great man, Adams was not a great party leader, and he warned no one. 
However, putting oneself into Adams' shoes, one can start to understand why he made the choice he did. Partisan tensions were rising, and as we've noted in past episodes, Adams did not feel that a divided nation should be led into war. But if he had revealed to more Federalists what he was considering, those like Hamilton and Pickering, who had been pushing for war, might up their efforts to get Congress to issue a formal declaration of war to preempt Adams's move for peace. Meanwhile, the French position was much weaker now than it had been a couple of years prior. The Battle of the Nile, the War of the Second Coalition, the defeat of Le Sergent, all of the Directory's recent setbacks led Adams to feel that the U.S. was in a much better position now to gain a favorable peace than it had been at any other time during his presidency. And peace would be much cheaper on the nation than war, both financially and, more importantly, in terms of potential casualties. With all of this in mind, possibly the most influential factor was Adams's own inclinations. I've discussed in previous episodes how Adams, unlike Washington, did not feel the need to deliberate with others and rely on the opinions presented by those he saw as experts. While Adams would take in information from those he trusted, as he did in this instance, he was adamant that his deliberation would be more of an internal matter and that he would come to his decision on his own. This did not mean, however, that the nation would follow him after he made his choice. Indeed, as already stated, his own Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering, was actively working against peace. Pickering had gotten word from the U.S. Consul in Hamburg, Joseph Pitcairn, that a multiracial individual named Matthew Salmon was traveling to Charleston, South Carolina, on board a Danish vessel, the Minerva. Salmon had been a deputy to the French National Convention, and Pitcairn was concerned that Salmon would be carrying subversive materials to help to instill some of the French revolutionary spirit in the U.S. Pickering, thinking that Salmon would be carrying these materials to the South to ignite a slave rebellion, reached out to South Carolina Governor Edward Rutledge, as well as General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, to ask for their assistance in intercepting Salmon and his party. When their ship dropped anchor in Charleston Harbor on February 22nd, it was detained, and documents in French were found stored in tubs in the cargo hold of the ship. This incident, labeled the Tub Plot, became yet another flashpoint in the Partisan War. Federalists used it as proof to justify the measures the government had taken and to charge that people should, quote, rally round your government to defeat the French menace. Democratic Republicans, meanwhile, claimed that it was all a concerted plot to discredit the French and any individuals arguing for a peaceful resolution to recent tensions. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
I hope to see you soon. As soon as arch-federalists recovered from the shock of the Murray nomination, they started rallying to thwart it. Senator Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts was appointed on February 20th to a five-man committee to consider the nomination and went on the 22nd to meet with Adams to accomplish the committee's goal, quote, to induce him, i.e. Adams, to alter the nomination and instead of an individual to propose a commission as it respects the principles on which the negotiation shall commence. Adams, however, was adamant that, quote, the Senate must approve or negative the nomination of Murray. Sedgwick would pronounce Adams to have, quote, a vain, jealous, and half-frantic mind, while Pickering would write to General Hamilton assuring him that the nomination, quote, is wholly his, i.e. Adams's own act, without any participation or communication with any of us in the cabinet. Representative Harrison Gray Otis asked Pickering about Adams' point-blank as they met about the situation, quote, why, is the man mad? For some, the problem wasn't with the possibility of restarting diplomacy with France, but rather the agent that Adams had chosen to do so. Hamilton wrote on February 21st, expressing his support for the idea of a new three-man commission, and asserted that, quote, Murray is certainly not strong enough for so immensely important a mission. If you'll recall from episode 2.5, where we first met William Vance Murray, I noted that he had a reputation for independent thinking and action in his congressional career. Thus, it is not surprising that the arch-federalists were concerned about how he would approach the negotiations. Sedgwick dismissed Murray as, quote, feeble and guarded, credulous and unimpressive. Meanwhile, Federalist newspapers raged at the news, with editor William Cobbett of the Porcupines Gazette, and yes, I'm not making this up, that was the newspaper's actual name. Anyway, Cobbett wrote in an editorial of his disbelief at the decision and called Murray, quote, a man of slender political abilities. Some were not satisfied with just expressing their discontent with threats of political repercussions, though. Historian John Furley notes that around this time, quote, anonymous threats of Adams's assassination circulated. It was all going very badly, very fast. And for a few days after his special message of the 18th, Adams would be surrounded by clamor about the nomination. Adams would hear a divided opinion from his cabinet, with Pickering, Secretary of War James McHenry, and Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott Jr. expressing their opposition to a new diplomatic mission being sent, while Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard and Attorney General Charles Lee expressed their support for a new diplomatic push. Likewise, not all Federalists were against the new peace mission. Adams would find General Washington, John Marshall, Patrick Henry, Henry Knox, and New York Governor John Jay all expressing their support. The Senate, meanwhile, was the body that he had to convince, and it quickly became apparent that it would be an uphill battle to win over Federalists in that body. Adams would meet with Sedgwick and other Federalist senators who urged Adams to withdraw his nomination of Murray, or, barring that, to appoint two others to a commission with him. These meetings would get heated, as the senators threatened to vote against Murray if he was sent as the sole U.S. minister, to which Adams replied with a threat of his own. If the senators wouldn't support him and his nomination of Murray, he would just resign the presidency and hand over the reins to Jefferson. How do you like them apples? 
even with the horrific possibility of President Thomas Jefferson looming over their heads. When Senate Federalists caucus to discuss the situation, they decided to reject Murray's nomination as sole diplomat and to recommend that General Hamilton and former Senator George Cabot be sent with Murray as a three-man commission to France. With the threats flying fast, a cooler head entered the fray. Supreme Court Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth met with Adams about the situation and a compromise was reached. Adams would appoint Murray and two others as a new commission, but he was determined not to appoint either Cabot or Hamilton as Senate Federalists wished. Who would he choose then? Given his role at bringing about peace in Philadelphia, Adams turned to Ellsworth and asked him to head up the commission. Though reluctant, Ellsworth realized that he was a palatable compromise to both the Senate Federalists, with whom he had served alongside before his appointment to the court, and to the president. Thus, he agreed for his name to be put forward. With Ellsworth of Connecticut and Murray of Maryland filling two of the three spots, Adams felt that he needed someone from the South to round out the commission. Thus, he decided on Patrick Henry for the third spot and sent all three names to the Senate for confirmation on February 25th. This wouldn't completely quell the uproar, but it at least brought it back to more of a simmer for the time being. Though so much of the focus at the end of 1798 and early 1799 had been on France, the Adams administration and those in its orbit had other matters on their minds as well. British Minister to the U.S. Robert Liston had been lobbying hard throughout 1798 for U.S. support of an expanded British presence in the Caribbean, and while he felt that he had the support of Secretary of State Pickering, Secretary of the Treasury Walcott, and Secretary of War McHenry, he knew there was one key player that still hadn't signed on, President Adams himself. As the year wore on, the possibility of getting U.S. support dwindled, especially as the British forces withdrew from Saint-Domingue, as discussed in episode 2.9. Even Pickering by June was beginning to talk about independence for Saint-Domingue. By September, during Adams' long sojourn in Quincy, Liston traveled to Peacefield and had a discussion with the president about the situation. Liston proposed an alliance between the U.S. and Britain to drive France out of the Western Hemisphere once and for all. There were already rumors flying around about French designs to retake Louisiana from the Spanish, rumors which it turned out had some truth to them, as French Foreign Minister Talleyrand had been talking up the possibility of reacquiring Louisiana. And thus, Liston proposed that the U.S. should take Louisiana while the British could occupy Saint-Domingue. A British-occupied Saint-Domingue, however, was not an attractive prospect in Adams's mind. The British already had a strong presence to the north in Canada. What would it mean for Britain's position in the Western Hemisphere if they should take what was once France's most lucrative colony? No, Adams too spoke of an independent Saint-Domingue. The British weren't inflexible, though. A proposal was made at some point of a joint American-British commercial company controlling Saint-Domingue. No, Adams responded, quote, It would be most prudent for us to have nothing to do in the business. Liston, however, would not be the only one petitioning Adams directly on the subject of the future of Saint-Domingue. Toussaint Louverture wrote to Adams on November 6, 1798, the first communication that I found between the, quote, General en chef de l'armée de Saint-Domingue and the President of the United States. Since Saint-Domingue was still a French colony, the Non-Intercourse Act that Congress had passed in June forbid trade between the U.S. and France, and that included its colonies. Toussaint wrote to Adams, however, in order, quote, à mes conseillers, avec vous, sur le moyen propre, à rétablir la navigation et à faire arriver dans nos ports le pavillon américain. Whoops, sorry, let me translate. 
He was seeking a means to restore navigation between the two locales and have the American flag fly once more in the ports of Saint-Domingue. Now, the problem at this point was the nominal status of Saint-Domingue as a French colony. In mid-1798, as discussed in episode 2.9, though Toussaint and his colleague in the south, André Rigaud, retained the majority of actual power in Saint-Domingue, the French government had sent an official agent, the Comte de Deauville, to govern the province. Edouville, rather than bringing order and stability to the colony, had destabilized the situation further by inflaming tensions between Toussaint and Rigaud and stoking the animosity between whites, the free coloreds, and the formerly enslaved blacks, the three main social divisions in Saint-Domingue, as explained back in episode 1.10. That's right, the story of Saint-Domingue goes way back in our narrative, and I highly recommend listening to some of the earlier episodes, as well as Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, where he did an extensive series on the Haitian Revolution that went into much more detail than is within the scope of this podcast to go into. Anyway, Edouville went a step too far when, in his attempt to gain a stronger foothold in Saint-Domingue, he ordered the arrest of Toussaint's adopted nephew. L'Overture, in turn, ordered the arrest and expulsion of Edouville. Thus, when he wrote to Adams in November, Toussaint was the ultimate authority in the North province of the colony. So given that, he put forward to the president that possibly an exception could be made for Saint-Domingue in order to allow trade to proceed once more. It's not like Toussaint had any intentions of letting the French profit from the trade anyway. Part of his outreach to Adams was to provide Toussaint with the added support that would be needed to defeat Rigaud. As part of the British withdrawal negotiated by Toussaint earlier in the year, the British commander had already agreed to allow British shipping into the ports of Saint-Domingue. And as Toussaint was in control of the main ports on the island, that would work to his benefit to bring revenue, supplies, and legitimacy to his regime. Having U.S. shipping return to Saint-Domingue, though, would be an even greater boon. And Secretary of State Pickering likewise saw the benefits of an independent, Toussaint-led Saint-Domingue to American interests in the Caribbean. However, one problem would have to be worked out. Both the British and the Americans were worried about supporting a regime that had its origins in a slave rebellion. They didn't want that crazy idea that enslaved people should rise up and fight for freedom to spread to, oh, say, British-controlled Jamaica or the American South. Thus, Pickering worked with British minister to the U.S. Robert Liston and the British officer who had negotiated the withdrawal of British forces from Saint-Domingue, and the three came up with a joint proposal in which the U.S. would be granted, quote, a virtual monopoly on the trade in provisions and raw materials with the new Caribbean nation in exchange for Toussaint and his regime not working to incite slave insurrections anywhere else. Toussaint agreed to these terms, and having secured the support of Britain and the U.S., turned his attention to dealing with Rigaud. Pickering, meanwhile, had one eye on possibilities even further south. That's right, it's time to return to the plans for Latin American independence being proposed by Francisco de Miranda. We last discussed Senor Miranda back in episode 2.9 when he met with U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King in London in early 1798, with King writing enthusiastically about Miranda's schemes to both Pickering and Alexander Hamilton. Miranda would write to Hamilton directly numerous times during the course of the year, but Hamilton would wait until after he was commissioned as Inspector General of the U.S. Army to write back. Hamilton had made Miranda's acquaintance during the latter's time in the U.S., and thus it seems that the subject of Latin American independence was not a new discussion between them. Hamilton wrote on August 22, 1798 that, quote, The sentiments I entertain with regard to that object have been long since in your knowledge. 
but I could personally have no participation in it unless patronized by the government of this country. While admitting that the time was not yet right, he also expressed an optimism that possibly by the winter, the U.S. could be persuaded to join in the scheme. And Hamilton told Miranda that, quote, I shall be happy in my official station to be an instrument of so good a work. The two hitches to this, as with American involvement in Saint-Domingue, were in securing some sort of agreement with Great Britain and to secure the support of President Adams. Hamilton realized that both of those may be precarious, so he took some precautions in sending his letter to Miranda. First, though it could hardly be supposed that anyone would buy that it came from anyone else, Hamilton had his six-year-old son, John Church Hamilton, actually write the letter. He also had his son write out a letter to Rufus King. Rather than sending Miranda the letter directly, he would convey it to King, and Hamilton directed King, quote, to deliver the letter or not according to your estimate of what is passing in the scene where you are. Should you deem it expedient to suppress my letter, you may do it and say as much as you think fit on my part in the nature of a communication through you. In his letter to King, he expanded upon his thoughts of the potential operation, which he felt the U.S. should take the lead on, with the U.S. providing, quote, the whole land force necessary, as well as the commander. And not just any commander, of course. Quote, the command in this case would very naturally fall upon me. If anyone's surprised by this pronouncement, then you have learned nothing about Hamilton in the many episodes in which we discussed him. The goal of the expedition, as envisioned by Hamilton, would be, quote, the independency of the separated territory under a moderate government with the joint guarantee of the cooperating powers stipulating equal privileges in commerce. Now, as we know from previous episodes, while Hamilton may have had this scheme in mind while trying to organize the new army, Adams would be working behind the scenes to thwart any such effort. As noted by King Bauer for Robert Ernst, Adams was cool to Miranda's scheme and thus would issue no orders one way or the other about it. In frustration, King wrote to Pickering on October 20th, 1798, that, quote, You are silent concerning South America. I have again and again touched upon it. I have wished to say much more, but I have not thought it prudent to. England is ready. She will furnish a fleet and military stores, and we should furnish the army. King may have been a bit premature in the summation of British readiness, though. For, as noted by historian Bradford Perkins, in a cabinet meeting in 1799 on the subject, when the British government believed that the U.S. was ready to support the expedition to Latin America, Foreign Minister Lord Grenville expressed his opposition to the idea and other cabinet members expressed lackluster support for it, giving their assent only in order to leave the British government room to influence matters in a direction more favorable to British interests, rather than out of any strong feeling of support for Miranda's push for independence. Hamilton, meanwhile, was exploring ways to use his army position in order to lay the groundwork for the enterprise. In a letter that Hamilton drafted for Washington on December 13th, he noted that, quote, there may be imagined enterprises of very great moment to the permanent interest of this country, which would certainly require a disciplined force. To raise and prepare such a force will always be a work of considerable time, and it ought to be ready for the conjecture whenever it shall arrive. Not to be ready, then, may be to lose an opportunity, which it may be difficult afterwards to retrieve. As with the military rank controversy, if Hamilton could get Washington to sign off on the scheme, or at least allow his name to be used in its support, they could put the pressure on Adams to move it along. Washington, however, was hardly interested in even using the army against the diminishing French threat, which was supposedly the main reason for its being assembled. 
much less to take on this new scheme of independence in South America. Mount Vernon and his personal affairs, as well as providing support for Federalist candidates for office, were the main objects to occupy Washington's attention by that point. This did not deter Hamilton, however. In January 1799, he wrote to the chair of the House Committee on Defense, Representative Harrison Gray Otis of Massachusetts, of the Miranda proposal, asserting that, quote, If universal empire is still to be the pursuit of France, what can tend to defeat the purpose better than to detach South America from Spain, which is only the channel through which the riches of Mexico and Peru are conveyed to France? By that point, though, there was a sea change taking place, and it was being guided from the highest office in the land. President Adams, who had been a proponent for free trade principles for decades, as discussed way back in episode 2.2, would gladly open the doors to trade with Saint-Domingue in a peaceful move, which would undermine both British and French interests in that nation. But sending an army to invade South America? No. President Adams understood just how precarious the American position was in the global landscape. And for that reason, when the opportunity for a diplomatic resolution with France came, he jumped at it. While this new commission made its way across the Atlantic, it would be up to Adams to mine the barn back home and keep Hamilton and the Arch-Federalists, as well as Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans, in line. How in the world to do that, though? Well, we'll explore that together next time in an episode I'd like to call Hot Time, Summer in the Country. Until then, I welcome any questions or comments you may have. Please feel free to reach out to me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram as presidencies podcast. Again, all one word. Sources used for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. And you can also find links to Noah Tetzner's podcast, Stories of the Second World War and the History of Vikings, on there as well. Thanks again to Noah for providing the intro quote for this episode, and thanks so much to all of you for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.